0: for reading a very interesting text for us this morning. Happy Palm Sunday. Yeah, you guys awake, you ready to do this thing? Uh, my name is Corey, I'm one of the pastors on staff. Good to be your teaching pastor for today. Exciting text um, that we get to get into uh, today. And so, if you're new to Heights community, let me just say welcome. Um, also, let me let you know that there's really three things we're about as a church. That's gospel, community, and mission. You're going to hear about it uh, every week. And the primary way that we make disciples is in what we call or through what we call missional communities. Um, and so if you don't yet know what a missional community is, you're going to hear about it a lot. We're going to continue to invite you in Uh, To that, you can ask most people sitting next to you uh, what that means. You can come to anyone that's ever on stage and ask, or most people that are wearing a Heights shirt uh, are going to be in an MC as well. So you can uh, figure out what it is um, as far as just asking someone close to you. They're going to be able uh, to fill you in. But it's the primary way that we do business um, as Heights community. And so, uh, with that, our second thing, one more thing the video we showed you was a Facebook announcement that we had put out. And so if you could just like, share, comment on that, it helps with the algorithm as far as like how that spreads about, uh, not to attract a bunch of new people, but just so our Heights community people uh, can have a, an idea of what's happening next week, as there's a ton of detail uh, that Pastor Dave is going to tell you more about later, but in the mean, not in the meantime, because that would be during my sermon. <laughs> but at some point today or throughout the week, if you could share that, that would be uh, incredible. All right, here we go. We're currently in a series uh, called "Lest." we turn, lest we turn, Uh, where we've been looking at the difference between what happens whenever we turn to God and whenever we turn away from the Lord. And so as Jeff just led us through, we Um, are coming out of the book of Joshua into the book of Judges, and it's a pretty morbid book, as you just heard read. There's some stuff in there that's going to be interesting. Some stuff's funny. Some things are going to be convicting. We're going to get into all of it uh, today, and one of the primary things that we see as we're rolling through Joshua and and Judges specifically is that there's this pattern of life that has been exposed to us, and so Carrie, if you could throw that out for me. What we've seen is uh, we have commitment And complacency and uh, compromise. And this is really what you're going to see throughout the book of Judges. I mean, very clearly. Uh, Most certainly, you're going to see it all throughout the Bible. You're going to see commitment, you're going to see complacency, and you're going to see compromise. And then you're also, if you just look at your own life, like last week, I kind of jokingly, kind of tongue-in-cheek, said, think about how many times people create a, a New Year's resolution to club fitness, all right? And week one, boom, commitment. Like, we are all in on this thing. You guys didn't have sign-up fees. We're in, 22 bucks a month, no big deal. Week two, we start hitting complacency, and you think, I like Sonic a little bit more than club fit, and then you're full-on compromise, right, dominoes, and you've just worked through this Like this, you know, this ladder, if I may, this regression, if I may, of commitment, complacency, and compromise. So it's not just something we see in judges; we see it in life. Uh, You see it uh, in parenting. You see it in marriage. With your vocation, if you've been at a job for many years, you can hit. You can see commitment and complacency and um, full on just compromise. I don't even want to be here anymore, right? So this is a normal pattern for life. And so if we can learn to identify this pattern in the stages that we're in, we can also learn how how the gospel pulls us out of these stages. And so that's kind of the primary thing that we see in Judges. So you'll hear us referencing it uh, along the way. Today we're looking at chapter 3. Um, and basically what has happened is this: God has been in- incredibly faithful if you 've been with us through the series you 've seen god 's incredible faithfulness, faithfulness to His people. Uh, the people have abandoned God. so God has done everything that God said that He was going to do for them they 've said we're all in, we 're all in on relationship with you, and then they just go on and they worship. Cultural idols. They go to worship the state or the power that's in position during that time and they just worship idol after idol after idol. And then what do we see? Regardless of how Israel responds, God is incredibly faithful. And so when we get to the book of Judges, what has happened is that in Israel's disobedience, God remains faithful and he says, regardless of how you respond to me, I'm going to continue to love you and pursue you and show mercy upon you. But when you do turn and you genuinely repent and you genuinely confess this sin, I will redeem you, which is still true for us today. Yeah. And so God raises up these redeemers. They're called judges. He raises up these leaders from within their community to um, redeem them to really to come in as warrior leaders and conquer whoever has them in oppression. And he raises up at times, like we see today, some of the most unlikely of characters. And so what happens is he raises, God raises up a judge. What does that do? That starts to cycle over. Israel says, thank you. They're repentant. Boom, commitment. They immediately hit complacency. They start worshiping other gods, and then it's full-on compromise. They've surrendered their lives to whoever's in charge. Then they confess, and it just starts over and over and over Again, and so today our unlikely character is this guy named Ehud. And so it's so interesting to look at him, and it's such a wonderful reminder that God always uses unlikely characters to fulfill his mission. Uh, Even if you think about as we got into Joshua, we ended with Moses. Moses had a speech impediment, yet God called him to be his mouthpiece. We get into the book of Joshua, then, right there in the beginning stages of Joshua, and God uses a prostitute to redeem Israel and not only redeem Israel but to lead to the birth of Jesus. How much orion, how much more irony could you get than that? That's incredible, right? And then we get into Israel as a whole. Is all They're all jacked up, right? And yet God's gonna use them to continue advancing his mission. And then you think present time, think about us. We're not much different than Israel. We're all pretty jacked up too, yeah? And yet God uses us to continue to advance his mission in the same cycle. And so God has been gracious to us. And so today, though, this unlikely character that we get to see, we're not so much different than, is Ehud. So all I want to do is I'm going to work through the story with you. Uh, We're going to talk, I'm going to pull out some things that are pretty convicting that I said in this week, and then I'm going to point to how Jesus is the better Ehud. Sound good? Pretty simple? You guys better talk to me. I've I've been running late for weeks now, okay? So if y'all don't talk, don't let Paul be the only one that talks to me, okay? It'll just be him and me. Next thing you know, we're all having lunch together. It's going to go south, okay? Three things I want to show you. Ehud is the deliverer, Ehud the deliverer, Ehud the messenger, and then Ehud the redeemer. And then we're ultimately going to bring this to how Jesus is the better deliverer, messenger, and redeemer. Sound good? Story goes like this. Israel has rebelled, as we heard read, and God raised up a pagan king. That's an outsider from Israel whose name is Eglon, and he captures Israel. Listen, and then they go 18 years in slavery again. 18 years of oppression put upon them Again, and it isn't until they cry out to the Lord that then then God raises up this judge, Ehud, this unlikely character to redeem them. So verse 15, I'll read for us. Carrie, verse 15. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. There it is, this confession. We need you. And the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gerah, the Benjaminite. Somebody say Benjaminite. A left-handed man. There's a, a bit of a um, paradox that's happening here in the text, but let's begin with this. Listen here. Don't wait 18 years to cry out to the Lord. Like, no need to wait 18 years, right? Like, we're in this room alone, and those who viewed online through earlier this morning, like, there's a lot of hurt in this room. Like we're a very transparent church, very vulnerable church. We talk about everything. So when I say we're jacked up, people snicker because they're like, "That's preach that, pastor. That's true, right? Like, like we know our place before the throne. And so the, the reality is, like, there's no need to wait 18 years to, to cry out when you're wounded. There's no year, reason to wait 18 years to cry out when you know that you're clearly not walking with Jesus. Like he's given us a clear calling. And so in that, then as I'm thinking through that this week, there's a reality here then where some of the sin that you experience in your life is due to the effects of sin. That means that some of the drama, some of the hurt, the heartache that you experience is simply due because we live in a fallen world, a sinful world. Some of the reason that you've been struggling for maybe some of you 18 years is because you've at some point stopped confessing sin. And so then redemption has lost its taste to you. So what happens then is whenever we become, whenever I, Corey, becomes numb to sin, I have no need for redemption. Like Pastor Pastor Jeff's up here saying he went to a church where he was not allowed to talk about sin. What happens if you don't talk about sin? Well, now you have no need for a Savior, so then you can be the Savior, and you can look to yourself. You can be your own judge, you can be your own redeemer, your own messenger, your own Lord, and your own Savior. You have no need for Jesus. So there's a reality here in the text for us where Israel at some point stopped confessing sin. We talked about it last week a little bit. And if you stop confessing sin, what happens then is that redemption is no longer flavorful. Like it loses its taste. You have no need. You find yourself 18 years later still dealing with the same nonsense you were dealing with. So some of you are experiencing sin because it's just the effects of sin. Some of you have looked at sin and said, that's not important enough to confess. And here's the reality when it comes to sin. There's no sin small enough that it's not worth confessing. There's only sin that wants to destroy every single thing that you love. That's it. That's the option. It wants to kill everything. At some point, they grew numb to that Reality And so Israel then finally, after 18 years in this cycle, they cry out and God raises up for them Ehud. And let's tell you what, Ehud is ridiculous. Like the reality that Ehud is the one who's called up to be the leader makes no sense at all outside of God being completely in control. So what we heard read was that Ehud is a Benjaminite. To be the tribe of Benjamin. Uh, would have been an incredible reality for him uh, a few years later. But right now, the tribe of Benjamin is terrible. They're not a warrior tribe yet. They will be one day. Right now, the only reason they're even mentioned in the book of Judges is for their failure as warriors. So he raises up this failure warrior from the tribe of Benjamin, the, literally the most insignificant tribe during this time. Later, they become great. Right now, terrible. So he raises up this weak warrior. Benjamin literally means to sit at my right hand. But Ehud is a left-handed man. And so most commentators and philosophers or whoever you're reading would agree that this understanding of Ehud being a left-handed man is actually translated in the Hebrew a, a bound right hand or a deformed right hand or he had no mobility or use in his right hand. So the irony is right there in the name from the tribe of Benjamin set at my right hand and yet does not have the use of his right hand. He's the anti-hero. He, he has nothing good to bring to the table as a warrior. So in their culture, the right hand was significant because it revealed power and strength and authority. Like it was what a warrior or a picture of like a right hand holding a sword. You're like, oh, that's a bad dude. He's got that tattooed on his chest. I ain't dealing with that dude, right? Like that was, a, that was, problem was coming to you, right? It was not going to be good for you. And so for Ehud here to be this Benjamin Knight who cannot use his right hand is literally the opposite of everything that we would have looked for. Here's what he would have been. He would have been weak. He would have been overlooked. Uh, He would have been marginalized. He would have been pushed to the edge of society. If Israel were to be worshiping God in the way that they're called to, although they're not... He would not have been able, Ehud would not have been able to come into gathered worship like this because he would have been considered unclean. Uh, As he walked through the city, uh, he would have rather hid himself from everyone because with his deformed hand and with his other hand, he would have had to walk through the city saying, unclean, unclean, unclean for everyone that he engaged. Could you imagine that life? Like There's nothing about him that would have been attractive. There's nothing about him where we would look at Ehud and say, man, you know what? I would love to be like Ehud. Like, literally, I mean, everything about him, he would have had to do everything in complete and total isolation. He would have been an outcast, lower than a dog in their society. That is, like, the lowest of low. And so here's the reality of what's happening. This is so telling of the position in the heart of Israel. Listen, they're not sending in a warrior to win a battle. They're sending in this deformed runt to experience a death sentence, which reveals the position of their heart. Like it reveals reveals that what they think God is going to do or the absence of God. It reveals a position of defeat for them. It it reveals they have um, no hope. They most certainly are not trusting in any sort of victory. This picking of Ehud is a direct reflection of spiritual lostness, spiritual hopelessness. They're literally sending this guy to die. It's a murder sentence. You see, you guys still tracking with me? Dude, listen. When you wait 18 years to to cry out to the Lord, this is what happens: spiritual hopelessness, spiritual depravity. What God is it even worth talking to Him anymore? And so, instead of then giving God the first fruits, what do we do? We just give Him the runs of the litter. We give Him the leftovers because He can't do anything anyway, right? When you become numb to sin, sin, redemption loses its flavor, and it's no longer tasteful. And then we just give God the leftovers. That's initially what we see here in the text. Listen here. That's true for Israel Church. It's also true for us. So in my own missional community, we meet on Tuesday nights. In my own MC, we sat this week and I, I wrote a question for everyone uh, in missional community this last week that was gathering, and it says, where are you finding yourself being complacent in the cycle? We're talking about the cycle from last week's sermon. Where are you finding yourself being complacent? Here's what my MC said. Okay, tell me if you can relate. My missional community said uh, we're being complacent in family discipleship. We have no rhythms for family discipleship. We're being complacent in our lack of healthy conversations with our kids. We're just not talking to our kids about Jesus. We have a complacency, complacent prayer life, not crying out to the Lord. Complacent in regular scripture reading. Complacent in seeking solid community. Literally, my MC. Maybe this isn't yours although I'm sure it's a reflection of yours, literally complacent in every single spiritual discipline. What does that mean? It means we've stopped crying out. We've stopped confessing sin. And if that's true in my MC, 26 adults sat in the room, it's most certainly true for the rest of the church, isn't it? So we're not so different from Israel, are we? What, what, What were they doing? What was our excuse? Our excuse was that we were too busy pouring ourselves out to cultural idols, to Netflix, to Facebook, whatever else no excuse right here's the reality we've stopped crying out church sin has lost like we've become numb to sin which means redemption has lost its flavor and we give God the leftovers that's what judges reveals to us that we're just not that different and so Israel cries out okay summons Ehud the sacrificial runt they send him out to go get slaughtered essentially Um, what they did not consider is this Ehud's lifestyle. So just like, as I mentioned earlier, just as God had chose a prostitute, to do what prostitutes do, to lie and to invite men into their quiet chambers, right, to manipulate them. Um, So also God has used Ehud just right where he's at, right in the character of where he is at. This man who's had to walk out isolation, um, he continues to walk out isolation. Before he's, before he experienced any form of redemption, I'm supposing here, he's moving to just do the things he always has known to do. How do we know that? Well, the scriptures support it, that he does everything alone. He makes an 18-inch shank, Alone, right? If you don't know what shank is, that's like that's hood for sword. You with me? So he makes this 18 inch sword, if I may, this knife, double bladed knife, double bladed uh, edged knife. And then he goes to the tribute with the carriers um, alone. So he goes to present this gift to this pagan king, but he does it alone. And then he sends away those um, individuals who are carrying that gift, and he goes back into the king's chamber, and he does it alone. So everything that he's used to doing in his life, God allows him to continue doing to eventually bring redemption to Israel. Gosh, that's encouraging. So then the author then makes this note um, that he does it as he's a left-handed man. We can't overlook that. Because it tells so much about the character and the nature and the life of this man. The second notion that the author makes is also equally important, where he says, and I heard you chuckle earlier, you bunch of degenerates. Eglon was a very fat man. I heard you preschoolers in here (laughs) chuckling about it. Eglon the king was a very fat man. It's not there for comic relief, interestingly enough. It's there because it's true. Uh, It's there because it draws out a further tension. It reveals even further what's happening in the text among these people. And so for the author to say that Eglon is a very fat man was not so much about his physical disposition, but more so about his spiritual disposition. And so what the author is saying here is that Eglon would have indulged on the spoils of Israel. He's talking not just about idolatry. He's not just calling, calling out his weight or anything like that. He's saying, like, there was an incredible amount of indulgence. There was an incredible amount of idolatry within this king that he's just ravaging the people of Israel as their king, which is far different than what we saw with God, God's pursuit. So we get into that. Eglon literally means um, the fattened calf from Moab. Moab. Mo means who. Ab means Dad, he's literally the fattened calf from a city called Who's Your Daddy? That's what's happening here in the text. God's got some jokes about it, right? Because God's about to answer that question, isn't he? Through Ehud, Who's Your Daddy? Yeah, right? We're getting there. We're getting there. We're getting there. Right, so Eglon, right? This country, listen, Moab, literally was a country ridden in incest. The, the name is very fitting. All of these details are super important. It was full of sexual immorality that American culture would blush at. I mean, it was a disgusting, foul country, right? So what's happening here in the text then? We have this man with a deformed hand from the bottom of the society that's expected to be this gigantic warrior, and then we have the and calf king from a town called Who's Your Daddy, and they're about to come into a collision with one another. How do you think this is gonna go? Let's read. Let's continue reading then. Verse 16, we see Ehud, the messenger. He's got a message for him. So, verse 19. But he, that's Ehud, himself, turned back At the idols near Gilgal, and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he commanded, the king commanded, silence. And all the attendants went out from his presence. Look at this shifty, shady little Ehud. And Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in the cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And Eglon rose from his seat, okay? Difficult as that would have been for him, verse 21. And Ehud reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh and thrust it into his belly. And the hilt also went in after the blade. Again, this imagery given to reveal uh, the obese idolatry of this man. And the fat closed over the blade for he did not pull the sword out. He's like, I don't want that. And then uh, the dung came out, okay? There's a lot of things I have to talk about that are really difficult. For some reason, talking about poop with y'all, Makes me feel uncomfortable. And Ehud went out into the porch, okay, then he closes the doors on the man as he's stabbed with poo coming out of his side. Um, closes the doors of the roof chamber behind him and he locks them, right? What happens? He says, boom, stabs him, literally stabs the poo directly out of him, right? If I've said it once, I've said it a hundred times in a sermon, if your go-to is to grab a knife, it's not your first time, okay? This is not Ehud's first time shanking somebody in a bathroom, guaranteed, okay? And so he does it in the cool roof chamber, which is also important to note. The author's imagery is very important. So in the cool roof chamber is significant because in the cool roof chamber, this would have been an area that was up higher than his normal living quarters, which is interesting because he put a bathroom in there, And so he goes into the cool roof chamber. What he would have done, Eglon would have done, was go into that and look at his, like his dominion. So he would have went into this area and just kind of boastfully glazed, rubbed his big belly, asking, who's your daddy, staring at all that he has conquered, all that we know God has allowed him to conquer. It was really like the pinnacle of his glory, if I may. And so for him to die in there is also God's way of saying, hmm, guess not. So it says, all right, I have this message for you. In that even, the king, okay, again, revealing his pride. It's all really important. Reveals his pride. He stands up. So this, this king, Eglon, would not have believed in, like, Yahweh as his God, as his deliverer. He would have believed in a multitude of gods. And so for someone to even come and say, hey, king, I have, a, I have something for you, a message from God, that would have been, like, a moment of, like, adoration where he would have been like, oh, this is, you're going, you're here to serve me. You're here to please me. So even that, the author's putting that in there so that we can experience the pride um, and yeah, the pride of this king. So he rightly stands up, and then Ehud, the sneaky assassin that he is right, answers the question, who's your daddy? Yeah, stabs him. That's what's happening. We're in it. We're all in this together. God sends this unlikely Ehud. Think about this, though. God sends this unlikely leader, Ehud, to slaughter the fattened calf, Elgon, for the redemption of Israel. It's like this beautiful imagery that God has given us here, foreshadowing Christ, like the need of Jesus the need for the slaughtering that is coming in the future for the redemption of his people. It's really cool and really beautiful in a really sick, twisted way. Welcome to Heights community. And So, Eho delivers the blow, boom, right? Somehow then locks the door and then sneaks away. And then the servants think, maybe he's just in there taking a number two. He must just be in there doing his morning business. And then I love the text that says that they wait until they were embarrassed before they go in, if you guys saw my Facebook post, if you want to know how long one must wait until it's an embarrassing amount of time to check on someone, it's anywhere between 30 seconds and 30 minutes depending on your age and whether or not you're sending memes the whole time you're in there, okay? So thank you for the 67 <laughs> comments that you gave me when I put down what is, the, what is the embarrassing amount of time to check on one. But just think about it. like Enter into the story. That's why we're playing here for a minute. Like Think about this. Think about your boss being on the john. You're like, hey, dude, you good in there or what? Like, how much... Time, do you, wait, what is an embarrassing amount of time, right? Why is that detail in there? Because it's like totally reveals the human nature of the situation. Like it's little details like this. All these little details are important because they help us rely on God's word, right? So if you're skeptical about God's word, there's no way you would put all these details in there if you were trying to sell something that wasn't true. So it's important that we set in and think, about this, the ultimate message then that is told, that is revealed to us, is this idolatry at the end will leave you dead and isolated and alone. Listen, don't wait 18 years to confess. Some of you right now are feeling this spiritual isolation right now, spiritual loneliness right now, and unfortunately at the pinnacle of your life might be your success, and then it's just all downhill from there. Don't let American culture tell you what to worship. Third thing that we see then is this Ehud goes from this runt to this redeemer. Right? God wasn't satisfied with just killing the king. God takes out the whole entire body, which is everything he's done from the beginning in Joshua. Every single thing that God has done. We'll continue reading verse 26. Ehud escapes. Verse 26, Kerry. Ehud escaped while they delayed, while they're trying to figure out what to do with their boss. And he passed beyond the idols and escaped into Sarah. When he arrived, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. Like, that's like the battle cry. Then the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was their what? Their lead. You're not very confident. He was their what? Their leader, right? He becomes their redeemer, Ehud does. And he said to them, follow after me. Imagine that, the redeemer saying, follow me. Follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hands. So they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan. That's like the low parts of the water. fords of the Jordan against the Moabites and did not allow anyone to pass over. And they killed at that time about 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years. And then what's going to happen? The cycle is going to continue again. All throughout Judges, all throughout the Bible, all throughout our lives is the same thing that we're going to see. The only thing that happened here, the only thing that happened here was Israel finally cried out. Just think about that for a second. Like Israel finally confessed They didn't say, no, there's some sin that's just small. Some sins are just for me. Some things I can keep in isolation. There's a reality where as a nation, they cried out to their God and they said, God, could you please come redeem us? Could you please come save us? And then God just did everything that he's done so far in the series, right? There's not one time in the book of Joshua where God looked at the people and said, you can redeem yourself. You go take out that tribe You go earn that land, you go get the inheritance, not one time. He says, no, be strong and courageous, trust my word, trust my spirit, trust that I'm present with you, and then storm the gates, and then God massacres everyone in their way, gives them all their land as an inheritance, never fails them, not one time. The only thing that's here that's exciting is that they finally confess their sin, and then God just remains faithful. Nothing new under the sun. It's the exact same Thing. And so think of this, for 18 years, Israel worshiped the, the head of the Moabites, the most profound, the most disgusting king you could ever imagine. That's who they ended up worshiping after 18 years. What are they doing? They worship, they're worshiping the head of the state. Man, I was thinking about that all week, this week, and, and just this reality that like two things. One, that God will sometimes just leave us to ourselves because he loves us that much. Like, there's a reality. When you read the book of Romans chapter 1, it's talking about this moment right here where God loved Israel so much that as a good dad, he finally left them to their own demise so that they would see how bad it's going to get. Tell me how a prosperity gospel fits into that. Like, we have a a saying in our family whenever my kids are not listening to me, which is pretty regular and, and often, you know, depending on the day and how much candy I've given them where I say, I say this to him, I say, here's the deal. Daddy's going to win, but how, how we get there is up to you. Like, at the end of the day, Dad's going to win, but, but I'm giving them an option. Like we can do this the easy way or the hard way, but I've won. Dude, that's exactly what the Lord is saying right here. At the end of the day, Dad's going to win, but, but how we get there depends on your, in this point, depends on your obedience. Your salvation is not contingent on your obedience, but how you experience the Lord most certainly is, Right? So it's not a works-based gospel that we're preaching. But there's a reality where we've been called to walk out specific spiritual disciplines that bring us nearer into the presence of God. Israel, at some point, stopped confessing, stopped repenting, stopped experiencing redemption, and exits, exits in many ways, the very presence of God and his protection. Right? Some of you have experienced the same sins for so long because the Lord, in his grace and mercy, has left you in them. And today's a good day to confess it. Right, listen, dad's gonna win. It just, how do you wanna get there? You tracking? So, what does Israel do? 18 years, they submit themselves over to the ruling, governing authority. Man, this is so staggering of a reality. Do you remember the election of 2020 and what the church did? Are we too far removed now to think about the election of 2020? where we had, I'm talking about Christians specifically, okay, for those of you in the room that are not Christians. I'm going to need to have a minute with Christians. Do you remember Christians waving Trump flags, which is one thing, but then saying, he's our Savior, that Jesus raised him up to redeem us? And then on the other side of the coin, you have people waving Biden flags, saying, "No, no, no, Christians waving Biden flags, saying, no, 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 he's not our Redeemer. This is the man that's going to redeem us, and there was this battle taking place. Talk about cultural idolatry at its worst. A horrific reality. An embarrassing reality for the church. An embarrassment. Uh, David was, uh, to be clear, Pastor David asked me to listen to this sermon from Matt Chandler, who's a, another pastor that, that lives in Texas. He's a president of Acts 29, which is a church planning network that we're a part of that uh, helps us plant churches. And, and Chandler Uh, really helped me think through this. Like This is just burning in my heart all week this week. Could not figure out how to say what I wanted to say, and he gave me words uh, to make sense of my heart, if that makes any sense at all. And he said in the sermon, Matt Chandler said in the sermon, one of the greatest idols that Satan will present is dependency on the state, dependency on the government. My gosh, the 2020 election, do we not see that? And even now, in so many ways, do we still not see that? might make you feel uncomfortable, but it's the reality of the world that we're in right now. He said, Satan will do these things. He lists very clear in his sermon. He said, one, Satan will call you to trust the state over your Savior. Two, at the same time, Satan will force the church to stop doing business with the world. How many people are getting sued right now because they're not caving on their beliefs from people that are existing in the world? How many Christians are being sued right now? Ultimately, the church then, he said, will begin to compromise. Well, maybe the Bible doesn't say this. Maybe the Bible doesn't say that. And then what happens is we move, then, what, from complacency full-on compromise. And he says one of the primary ways that Satan will do this is by creating this dependency on the state. Here's what's so crazy about this portion of my sermon to you. I had no idea this is what Matt Chandler was going to say in this sermon. I didn't know that's why David wanted me to listen to it. At the same time, while I'm just listening to his sermon in the background, I'm researching a book that I've referenced a couple times. I call it the most terrifying book I've ever read. And it's called When a Nation Forgets God, Seven... Things We Learned from Nazi Germany. It's the most terrifying book if you want to read it. It's very short, and you can read it in an afternoon. It's so engaging. When a Nation Forgets God, Seven Things We learn from Nazi Germany. I'm listening to Chandler's sermon. I pause it. I'm researching this book. David comes in and says, what part of the sermon are you on? I was like, I don't know. Here, I hit play. And he's like, that's the exact part I wanted you to hear. It was everything that I was wanting to say based off this book to you today. It was incredible. So it was a totally Holy Spirit moment. Here's the things that I had highlighted. Listen, I had this highlighted while this other pastor paused about to say the same things. I was like, man, what, what, what did Hitler do in the culture that would lead people to eventually follow him? Here's the things I had written in my notes before I listened to that sermon. Censored the church through minimi- minimalizing what could be said from the pulpits. Exactly what Matt Chandler said hindered Christians from the right to do business according to their values, which is exactly what he said in his sermon. Remove any hint of religious value and replace it with full secular values, i.e. the cheapness of life as in the abortion, as in abortion or euthanasia, the promotion of all forms of sexual immorality, and the sexualization of school children through removing their traditional values. It was literally what he said when I hit play. Boom. Already had it all in my notes. Tell me that God doesn't maybe want us to hear something today. I mean, it's a staggering reality. Are you saying Hitler is going to come up? No. I'm not saying Hitler is going to rise out of American Western culture, but I am saying keep your eyes peeled. It might be something far worse. Tell me Satan doesn't know what he's doing. Right? He's not running around with a pitchfork in pit, pitch, a, a red onesie. He's coming for you, dude. Coming for the bride of Christ. I had Kerry put this uh, quote in there for us as well. It says, I'll just write out of the book from the, the author. He said, of course, of course the United States is not Germany, right? Of course. And as we have observed, parallels between us and the Nazi era can be easily overdrawn. Also very true. We're not conspiracy theorists. But there is this abiding lesson. Satan was right when he said, all that in all that a man has, he will give for his life. Survival is a powerful drive within us all, and most of us are willing to compromise our values in order to live. And if the government can guarantee our financial future, we support that government even if we intuitively suspect we are being led down a dangerous path. How many of us, myself included, in the last week have made jokes about Biden bucks, Trump money, stimulus packages, I'm saying I'm not saying Hitler's going to come up, but I'm saying this: we need to keep our eyes peeled. Like there's a very real enemy. Hear me say: he's an enemy. He's not a threat. He's just an enemy that wants to come in and try to take out the bride of Christ. And so, Christians and non-Christians alike, right? You have to, at some point, ask the question. Right? If you're a skeptic in the room, you have to ask the question. I have to ask you the question: What did you think would happen when we removed morality from our culture? Like, what did you think was going to happen? When we removed, I'm not even talking about Christian, I'm just talking about when you remove morality from the culture, let alone Christian doctrine and theology, what did you think would happen? Just, look, just read a book and look at church history. You don't even have to be a Christian in the room. Just read about church history and just the history of what took place whenever the church is pressed in and let go of and people come against and then release her out. Just look at what happens and tell me that I'm wrong. There's this other quote in there I didn't share in the first service where he said, you show me your laws and I'll show you your God. Setting that. You show me your laws and I'll show you your God. My goodness, is so heavy. So just setting that this week, as we move into the gospel, let me give you some hope. Today is Palm Sunday. As Pastor Jeff reminded us of, Palm Sunday. Also called Passion Sunday, man, is the, the time that we come together in Christian tradition and, and we celebrate just the, the first Sunday as we move into uh, Holy Week or the Sunday before Holy Week as we're moving into Easter, celebrating or commemorating Jesus' triumphant entry uh, into uh, Jerusalem as, he, as Jeff led us through earlier. Listen here. Here's why this is so important. Every detail matters. They are, Israel is expecting a night to come and they get someone similar to Ehud. They get the run of the litter. They couldn't even find a place to be birthed. They get a God who was born in a manger. How laughable is that? And so all of Israel is waiting on this, this night to come, this um, guy to come in kind of on this big horse, like a Clydesdale, right? And what does he do? He comes in on a donkey. And how do the people respond to their messenger, to their redeemer, to their leader? They start laying coats down on the ground so that the donkey doesn't have to sit in the dirt. Like that's the right Response when we're met with a Savior. That's the response that comes when we practice a radical confession of sin and we are longing for and clinging to the redeeming work of Jesus Christ. And so Jesus is our better Ehud. Jesus is our deliverer. He comes into enemy territory on his own. Just like Ehud went into enemy territory on his own, so Jesus comes in on his own. Man, like a lamb being led to the slaughter, he walks in perfection, right, revealing the very nature and the character of God. He comes to face death, not in a way that's hidden in a cool chambered bathroom somewhere in Moab, but in a very real, very present reality, out in the public, on a cross, stabbed, pierced as well in his side, if you remember. dude, Murdered, sacrificed in our place. Why? Because Jesus is our messenger. He doesn't come to just to give death and reign and rule over everything in this really negative, terrible way. But here's what he does do. He does come and say, there's a right way to follow me and there's a wrong way. There is a radical pursuit of godliness that you need to have and it includes confession of sin and repentance and faith and renewed faith. And then there is most certainly an ungodly way to follow me and I will say, depart from me, I never knew you. He's our messenger. He's our messenger. The the word of God literally puts on flesh and receives the blow of death that we deserve so that we could experience life eternal with him, which means what? That he is most certainly our redeemer, that he can be your redeemer. Listen, it's not the state. It's not the culture. It's not anything. It's not money. It's not Biden bucks or Trump money or any sort of stimulus package that's ever going to come. It's Jesus. And what he gives is not temporal. It's eternal. It's eternal. And the beauty of the gospel is that we can then respond to the gospel. For the Christian, man, we can be reminded we need you. I do need to confess sin. I do need to experience redemption as once and for all, but I need to be reminded of what you've redeemed. And then for the non-believer in the room, the non-Christian in the room, where do you think culture's headed right now? And for you then, in this moment, like the Lord is saying, hey, you can reach out to me, call out to me. He is the better in every single way. He's the better messenger, the better redeemer, the better judge than anything that this world would ever have to offer. And he's saying, you don't have to wait 18 years. Rather, right now you can profess faith. You just need to respond to the gospel. And then he will continue to remain faithful as he has this whole time. Amen? So stay with me as we enter into communion. Communion as, a, as Christians gives us an opportunity to do what the Scripture is calling us to do. So if you're thinking, now what do I, what do, I do? As a Christian, you respond with communion. Hopefully you were able to grab a cup on the way in, but as you enter into communion, it, it gives you the opportunity to confess and to repent and to celebrate the work of Jesus. The text actually says in 1 Corinthians, right, if you need to confess and repent before you take communion, lest something bad happens to you. Like right there, communion says, hey, God loves you enough to leave you in your brokenness so that you come back to Him. Communion is a reminder for us. For those of you that are not yet Christians, I would encourage you then to take this time to reflect. To say, what am I professing faith in? Everyone in the room professes faith in something. Everyone in the room has a religion of some sort. So you have to to ask the question, right? What am I professing faith in and is it Jesus? And if not, then maybe today would be the day. Maybe today would be the day, the first day you get to take communion as a believing Christian. What an incredible reality for us to celebrate together. Uh, For those of you that are in Christ, feel free to take communion when you're ready.